I bet if I said the name Alison Jackson to you, you might think you've no idea who that is or what work does she do. But I bet I end up proving you wrong. Put into Google now Alison Jackson art and I bet you might recognise some of the work that she's done. She's had a TV show for the BBC and for Channel 4 in the past and she also has a number of different, quite high-profile images I don't know whether they parody celebrity culture or whether they mock celebrity culture, but even if you just go to her website, you can see some of the kind of slightly subversive work that she's doing. We went to her awesome studio in West London. It's the massive, the most incredible room in the world. Her artwork at one side, her right in the middle on a table. She was in true artist fashion, kept us waiting about half an hour. But the chat was incredible. She's so good at articulating her beliefs and she was also really good at kind of answering this uneasy alliance sometimes between culture and commerce. Things like she'd worked for Coca-Cola on a campaign. Anyway, let me know what you think of our conversation. Let me know what you think of our chat. We get to know Alison. We go on kind of a whistle-stop tour of her career and then we ask her about her rocket fuel. How have you got to where you are? What's what's the story? How did how did it start and how did you get involved in the work that you're doing now? Well, I've always been amazed when people say luck, uh, or that they were very lucky, because I've never really believed in luck. But I'm sure there's an element of that, right place, right time. But really, I'd say education has been absolutely a game changer for me, because I started off as a receptionist with very few educational Uh, qualifications. Uh, And then at 30, I took myself off to uh, college to do a diploma, a BA and an MA. And I did all of that in Kensington, Chelsea. I didn't budge from that one borough. And I started off with doing night classes uh, at a council-funded night school. And then I did a diploma at a council-funded art school, Kensington, Chelsea uh, College. And they were incredibly helpful. And I got together my uh, portfolio to do a BA at the Chelsea College of Arts, which was really difficult to get into, but mm. well prepped by Chelsea, uh, Kensington Chelsea College. And then went on to do a master's at the Royal College. Now, that was just a massive game changer because they totally deconstructed me, shot me down and then built me up again to make sure that I was confident with my own talent uh, and creative wherewithal, whether that actually came from drawing or my brain power. It didn't matter. Whatever my strength was, they absolutely uh, endorsed and gave me confidence to create more. And the BBC offered me a television series, which turned out to be a a BAFTA-winning television Mm. series while I was still a student at the Royal College of Art. And um, Schweppes Coca-Cola offered me a massive advertising campaign while I was still a student at the Royal College of Art. Talk to me, sorry to interrupt, talk to me about that relationship between commerce and creativity. Was that something you even considered when, when, when they came knocking with that commercial partnership? I didn't want to be swayed by commerce in any way. I had decided very strongly that I wanted to be a fine artist and I did not want to be bought uh, for paid-for art. And I didn't want my integrity sullied 
by any commercial um, dirt. Um, so I really didn't want to do the Coca-Cola advertising campaign. But it was, of course, <laughs> well, slightly swayed by the large sum of money they were offering. Of course. But, uh, sadly. Um, but I agreed to do it on the basis that I wrote the scripts, that it was absolutely done my way, and that was all put into a contract, and I had to be present everywhere and all over it, which is very rare for an advertising campaign. And are you proud of the work that was produced in your partnership with Coca-Cola? The main, I'm very proud uh, right. of the work that I did with uh, Coca-Cola. It was absolutely fantastic collaboration and uh, partnership. Uh, the other thing I insisted on was that the integrity of the concept that I had designed, which is a unique concept, nobody else was doing it, no one else has done it since, that the integrity of the concept was absolutely maintained, that it never wavered from one foot in truth and one foot in fantasy. Now, 20 years ago, that was a whole new ball game. People hadn't even heard of fake news. Right. I was trying to raise questions about fake news. So it was very, very difficult to drive my vision through at high level advertising level when there was a lot of money involved and people wanted it their way. The fake news aspect, I was going to ask exactly that question, is fascinating to me. I'm, I'm a news junkie. Do you think even the term of fake news has changed or do you just think it's the medium in which fake news is delivered? What, what's changed about fake news over the years? Fake news is just a strap line. You know, fake news has existed forever. Even Andy Warhol was making work about fake news at the birth of television back in the 60s when he was sort of making images about Marilyn Monroe. You know, was she celebrated? You know, is it ironic? whatever. I was making work uh, about fake news or raising questions about the media manufacture of celebrity, the media manufacture of news, that it, the very nature of photography seduces you into believing that you can trust it and believe it when in fact it's a deceitful medium, that you're seduced and cajoled by it when it doesn't necessarily tell the whole truth, which of course we're right in the middle of now. So that was, when I started, was at the height of television and press power uh, and the birth of our first celebrity, Princess Diana. We didn't really have a celebrity before then, uh, born through the television and through the press. So I was raising questions about it at that point and it was the beginning of the tabloid empire. And now, of course, we have the birth of the socials uh, and so you have the traditional media, television and press, criticizing the socials for fake news and slamming them for fake news, when in fact it's been going on forever, and particularly uh, when I was making it, making comments about it 20 years ago. So you've said that social media have been attacked by traditional media. Do you think there's a power struggle there? Do you think we're looking at the tectonic plate shifting a little bit in terms of the different media owners? Or do you actually think everybody's just looking for their own territory? Or you just think it's scared, people being scared of change? I think, of course, traditional media, you know, are vying for, you know, power control over the socials and who's more powerful. And it's about money, isn't it? You know, who's the most powerful? Who's going to make the most money? And also, it makes news and that makes money. So anything that makes news and bad news is, makes a lot of news uh, is good news for the media. 
Talk to us about more of the themes in your art and also how important is it to innovate and be reactive? So some of the work that you do seems either you're ahead of the news curve. I mean, I'm, I'm talking about some of the recent work earlier in March this year that was across with Meghan Markle. I mean, it, it's almost like you predicted where the tabloid news agenda is now in terms of people almost going anti-Meghan and looking for that. I mean, is, is that you've been reactive? Is that you've just been clever? Is that you seeing trends coming? How, how does that happen? Well, I think uh, it all comes around. I mean, what, you know, sometimes I make uh, work way in advance of things happening. Uh, and it's, it's sort of semi-predictable. One of the, my favorite brainstormers is a psychologist, for example. So we just sort of work out people's characters and then you can sort of work out what they're gonna do in the future. And so I'm always coming up with stories in advance uh, because of that kind of technique. So I'm not knee-jerking off the news. I'm actually working with the real-life characters of what they're likely to do and what's likely to happen. You're predicting the future, Alison. <laughs> <laughs> but what's interesting was uh, two decades ago, I made a picture of Diana Dodi and their mixed-race child. Mm. And it created complete outrage because the country was so prejudiced about the idea of having a mixed-race child in the royal family, you know, brother to the next uh, heir to the throne, Prince William. Uh, and that was Diana Dodi and their mixed-race child. And was she in love with Dodi? Was she going to marry him? Was she pregnant? Was she murdered because she was pregnant mm. uh, by potentially having this child? I was vilified, threatened to be expelled from the Royal College of Art, um, and it was a terrible moment, and the country hated it. And now, 20 years on, Prince Harry has had a mixed-race child, and of course, quite rightly, it's a celebration. Mm. And it's such a wonderful turnaround within 20 years. And I'm vying for Harry, and I, I think he's part of his mother, and, uh, you know, I think he's... That's in his mother's genes. So let's focus on that for a second, because as you said that, you smiled and you yeah. said you're vying for Harry. So you're not taking the mickey. You quite like some of the subjects, at least. I mean, we'll come on to Trump in a minute, but you quite like some of the subjects that you're, that you're parodying. You, you seem to have an admiration for Princess Diana. You seem to really want Harry to succeed. Where, where's the judgment call? Who do you like? <laughs> My work's designed to be thought-provoking, and it's not about the celebrity. It's about us and how we are obsessed with celebrity. We're totally fixated with celebrity, including royals and politicians. We think we know them intimately, but actually very few of us have met them for real. And why is that? Why can we feel personally, emotionally attached to these people when we've never actually met them before? We're just making a judgment about them through imagery. Imagery is our first language now. We live our lives through it. We think we can believe it. And in fact, it is this horrible, seductive, powerful, deceitful medium that really you cannot trust. Uh, and the camera lies. And I prove the fact the camera lies. And that's an age-old story. But of course, it's gone crazy now because we live our lives through it, through the socials. The, you know, there's no point 
reading. But this is why I think people have ADHD because they're busy swiping all the time, mm. looking at the next image. Then you know, because you can read images so quickly now, you, you don't on, have to read text. Are you on social media yourself? Yes. And are you a fan of it? Do you do you think it's changing the way that you behave? Do you? Think- I, I I love social media. I love the internet. I love Google. I love the whole way about it. But remember, I come from a very old-fashioned way. You know, I used to read books somewhat uh, occasionally, uh, and I still read now. And I can research and I can focus. If you're born more recently, there's no need to read a book. There's there's too many things, you know, a pint of coffee in the morning and busy swiping on your iPhone is going to send you absolutely crazy in this world of rubbish because there's so much rubbish uh, to see. And you have to be able to focus and discern what is good and what is not good in order to digest. Otherwise, I think you would just go crazy. When you're working, if you like, for yourself versus when you're working for the BBC, for for, have you you've worked for Channel Four as well, or have I made? That? I've worked for the B. My television series was uh, with the BBC and then with Channel Four. I've worked a bit with ITV and indeed Sky. And does your work change depending on who the work is for? And are you thinking about the people that you're creating for, or are you thinking about the audience, or are you purely thinking about you and the project at that time? I always think about my view and the project at the time and then I'll battle with with then I'll <laughs> battle with whoever the financier is or the broadcaster to try and get the best of that through of course taking into account the audience because if you're with the BBC you're beaming into people's uh, sitting rooms into people's lounges and you have to be able to answer to what you're just beaming straight into so it's a responsible position let me ask some questions away from your work, but about you as a person, if that's all right. Are you a mentor to anybody? Have you ever been mentored? Is, is that something that you're looking to do? I know the photography competition is perhaps part of that, looking for new talent. Talk to me about that relationship. Uh, yes, I like to help uh, young people as much as possible. What was interesting about the photography competition, it was for 13-year-olds to 35-year-olds, was that we did a social media campaign and nobody applied. Not one person applied, well, a few people applied. But what did work was out and about on the streets, talking to young people and giving them an old-fashioned poster. And then we got hundreds of replies. Uh, And I found that absolutely fascinating. So I'm quite relieved in a way that the good old hard copy and the engagement with young people so when they can see you and that you're flesh and blood and you look normal, even, you know, you're not their age group, that they will engage and respond and they can actually see something physical. Uh, And you, you know, they're talking through and how to take a photograph. Um, So that was the way that I engaged and communicated with the young people on the streets. And the results that you got from the photography competition, were they amazing? Were there some horror shows? Were they all brilliant? Tell us about them. Well, everyone said that I would never find any talent out on the streets. All talent was already found. And I kept on insisting, no, of course that's untrue. There's lots of talented people out there. They just have never had a chance or they've never had the confidence or whatever, wherewithal 
to come forward and show their work. And the results are excellent. And there's some outstanding talent, outstanding photographs, and both photographically and painterly type of photographs, and sculpture setups that are photographs that a whole range of creative things. So I'm extremely pleased with the results. We had an eminent set of judges, Nick Rhodes from Duran Duran, David Ross from Jigsaw, Robin White, who is a founder of many advertising agencies, mm. the WCRS group. The Engine Group. The Engine is. Group. Yes. Um, and really, they all thought the results were absolutely fantastic, which they are. And it was a very, very difficult choice. So if I can offer anything to any young people, I would be absolutely delighted. And yes, I have done uh, many times. And I, you know, as an artist, I have to create my own infrastructure, my own working structure, which is quite a difficult thing in itself. Uh, and so I've always done that by having mentors. So I've always chosen about 10 mentors, and they may change or add on to every five years, new set of mentors and they've seriously helped me throughout my entire career and you mentioned before you were collaborating with a psychologist um who else do you collaborate with and what sort of people do you like collaborating with you know i creatively co collaborate with thinkers so psychologists particularly because they're very interested in people and behavior i'm very observational um, so I'll collaborate with any observers uh, and I want to, I'm like a sponge, I want to sort of sponge up information. You know, obviously I watch the news as much as possible, but not too much. I'm not a news junkie because I want to feel what's in the ether. So really for me, it's the meeting of my intellect, my mind and my emotion. And it's that meeting point, which is the fusion, is the friction and the, the bit that ignites. I talk to a lot to journalists because it's shorthand uh, research and information, uh, and then somehow compute and translate it through my own brain. Are you any good at switching off? I'm not very good at switching <laughs> off, uh, but every now and then I like to go and lie on a rock okay. <laughs> and get away from it all. But generally I'm going 24-7. And you're always thinking about the next project, the next artistic endeavour. There's, there's always something ticking there about what might, what might happen next. Is that, is that how your brain works? There's something ticking all the time. The next project, the next idea. I don't know how I'm going to fit it in in my lifetime because I want to make a feature film, I want to make a musical, I want to do my theatre show. I've got uh, five exhibitions on at the moment around the world, which is really exciting. And I actually want to, you know, visit them and give talks around them. And so it's constantly uh, happening. And I want to have the photography competition again next year for young people. Talk to me about the reasons behind the photography competition. Why did you want to create it? Why did you want to do it? I think what has driven me to do the photography competition is to discover young talent that hasn't been discovered or had a chance to rear uh, before. And I see young people out there that just don't have any thoughts about their future. And I want to help them because I didn't have any uh, thoughts about my future. 
you know, I was stuck as a receptionist. I didn't even think I could get out of that until I had some education. And then it opened up, the world is your oyster. It opens up all sorts of possibilities that you think uh, that you could never have. And it's worth remembering throughout one's life that if you're ever stuck, just go back and learn something and it opens up another set of doors for you. It's absolutely transforming. I'm not going to ask you about your politics directly because there are plenty of other podcasts for that. But do you think that people can guess your politics from your work? And do you think that your art and indeed art more generally should be political? Well, I think that when people look at my work, they immediately assess it politically, probably, if they think about it. Um, But, and you can guess what that is. Yeah. Um, I'm very pro-enterprise. I want people to maximise their opportunities. So whatever they want to do, I want people to have an opportunity of doing it. And that's where I would like to help people. Okay, let's nudge on politics a little bit more. What role should an artist play in a political landscape? Well, as an artist, I'm non-judgmental. I sit right in the middle. Um, But I like to see people activate and maximise their potential. Uh, And there's a light under everybody's bushel. Nobody should really have their stone unturned, really. And that's what I would like to do for young people. And I feel that's what was done for me uh, with education. Uh, Absolutely 100% changed my life. So that's what I would like to see happen. Uh, In terms of politically, um, you know, that's my vision of uh, how I would like to see politics, that it's an enabler, that it enables people uh, to take their lives forward and to better better their lives and make things uh, more attractive for them, before for, we, for us. I think. Before we come on to some of the, our rocket fuel questions, I just wanted to ask a question on commerce and, if you like, what drives you. And we're talking to a number of different media people as part of this series, and we've asked, how do you assess the competition? But I realise it's a bit different in the world of art. I mean, do you look at other artists' work and think, that's amazing, and do you get inspired by that? Does competition with other art inspire you? Do you yeah, how do you perceive other art, and are they the competition, I suppose? Um, I love other art. Um, and yeah, sometimes I'm a little bit jealous of it, uh, and, but other times I'm very inspired by it. Like I'm very inspired by Andy Warhol's work. I'm very inspired by Damien Hirst's work, um, which sit on the border, if you like, of design and fine art, mm. and they're more accessible, like my work is, and I find that very refreshing. I very much like Tracy Emin's drawings, uh, and so I'm a, I'm a fan of all that YBA art uh, and uh, you know it's a joy for me to go uh, to Bridget Riley's show which I look forward to seeing it's a joy for me to see uh, all the Monets at Sotheby's you know so I love looking at old masters and I enjoy uh, Rembrandt and traditional works I enjoy uh, contemporary obviously where I sit 
filmmaking is an absolute inspiration for me as well. And for listeners that I, I, I'm, I go to the Affordable Art Fair every year and I love it. I go to an occasional gallery and I immerse myself in it. I sometimes feel, I sometimes have that imposter syndrome and I bet I'm not alone in that, in that appreciation of art. Where would you recommend people start? Would you recommend a trip to the portrait gallery? Would you recommend immerse yourself in what's local? Where should people start? Well, I love the Saatchi Gallery. One, I love the building, I love the layout, and the art there is absolutely fantastic. So I'd say that's a good stop uh, in Kensington and Chelsea. I would also uh, say please go to the National Portrait Gallery because it's the most wonderful uh, arena for portraits. And then the Royal Academy has the most wonderful uh, shows. I mean, I have to say I'm a massive fan of the Tate but it doesn't really get much airing these days. No, but the Tate is just wonderful, and it's such a landmark of contemporary art. I think the thing with the Tate as well is it will do the what I call a, a silly exhibit. So I've been to the Tate with my family and been immersed in smoke and, mm. and silly, but because the whole family are experiencing it together it becomes less art and more an experience. And then you're in, aren't you? When you're, you've got over any boundary of art, you've seen floors flashing. That's what I love, it's the experience. Yeah, no, it is a wonderful experience. Tate Modern is the most wonderful building. Uh, I think Nicholas Sorota has really built a magical, inspiring landmark, which is just going to exist forever, I hope. So let's come to your rocket fuel, Alison. What do you know about young audiences? Um, I see that uh, there's a lot of young people who are very engaged and the way that, that uh, they're, they're interacting with uh, older people is really fantastic and as you would hope. But I think there's a lot of people who just don't know how to engage with older people. And um, it's an interesting question of how to uh, be motivated. And I think back to my, when I was young, yeah, I didn't want to talk to older people. I didn't want to learn from them. I must, you know, I either had a learning disability or just didn't want to learn from uh, older people. Uh, so I think it's really important that old people uh, listen to the younger people and work out what, what do they want, what's going to encourage them to benefit from the things that the older people know that it could be good in an older people system uh, that could activate them and make a life better for them. It's funny you've touched upon that. With my next question as part of this, in an age where us marketing types hear lots about brand purpose, what do you think is important to young people and what should be important to young people? You've touched on this theme of education a few times and I found that fascinating. Well, education can sound extremely boring to young people and I thought it was very boring and I, uh, I came away with hardly any education, one or two qualifications. And uh, it wasn't until I was 30 that I decided to uh, educate myself. So I took myself off. Uh, to educate myself and earned enough money as a receptionist to pay for my education um, either through the council 
or eventually um, through higher education. And I think education is an absolute game changer, but it's getting into it. It's getting into that frame of mind that education can better your life at all because I had to force myself to go. I remember talking to a friend saying, oh, I'm going to cancel my diploma. I did not go into this. And I remember she got me literally and she said, you just go, just go. Otherwise, I would have just sat down doing nothing. I'd still be a receptionist now, in a, you know, just job hopping, uh, not doing anything with my life. And she just got me and pushed me in there and I'm forever grateful for her for doing that. So it does need somebody else really encouraging you and shoving you into education in order for you to tolerate it. And once I was there, I probably behaved very silly and stupidly occasionally. I remember being told awful off. I was always very mischievous. But I eventually came away with some great, great, uh, forget the qualifications, great, great opportunities. I have a BAFTA-winning television series, and I've got a wonderful touring art exhibition around the world. I just never would have dreamt I would have had that unless I had been forced at a very late age, age 30, of going and having some education. One more thing I must say about Please that. Please do. Because, um, so I started my education and I was very nervous because everybody else was very much younger than me and I was 30 and I thought I should be, you know, much better than I was. I felt useless. And the um, teacher came up on my first or second day in front of everyone and he said, okay, you're all going to make a sculpture. Go off and make a sculpture. And I thought, well, how do I do that? So I said to him, how do I make a sculpture? And he said, you decide. And I said, well, what do I make it? it out of and he said you decide and what I said well what do I make it about and he said you decide at this point I'd had a total breakdown a total panic I couldn't understand how I was going to proceed at all I could see everybody looking like they knew what they were doing and I had no idea and he was so good and I just went and got a piece of rubbish out of a skip and bolted on a piece of another bit of rubbish and he kept on coming back and saying that's very good. That's very good. And eventually I built this piece of rubbish sculpture. <laughs> and uh, we had then to stand up and crit it um, in front of everyone, which gave me another sort of meltdown. Um, and that was a really great starting point. And the other great starting point is that um, at Heatherly's Fine Art, I was doing some night courses. Um, I was taught how to line draw. So I was painstakingly line drawing someone's face and I thought I had it after two days perfectly and the teacher came along and he rubbed the whole thing out and he said do the whole thing again wow and I went wow how am I going to do it all over again he said you've done it once you can do it again I mean how great is that that's amazing yeah <laughs> what what a lesson what a life lesson that's it um penultimate question is what do you think will change about young audiences? What's going to change next? I think the socials and coffee and the combination and the bombardment of too much imagery and trying to decide what's a good thing to read or look at is very, very difficult without somebody guiding people on what to look at and what not to look at. So the lack of curation, so 
there's a million programs on Netflix that we're seeing, seeing a million images every day. You think that people need a guide and it's the lack of guidance through that proliferation of stuff that's going to affect young people. I think curation of the socials is a very, very good idea. Otherwise, you're just wading through a quagmire of rubbish and you might find a gem at some point, but very, very rarely. And then you get bogged down with the bad news. So you start looking at the dog getting run over, which is tragic. But do you want to spend your life looking at another dog getting run over? I would like to ask you, Alison, to give one key takeaway for everyone listening. I'm anticipating our listenership are going to be marketing types, youth media types, those broadly working in youth culture. What do you think is the most important thing that they should hear from you to take away? Well, trust your own creativity. You decide is a main key point that I learned from my education. Rub it out, do it again, another bit, and then take risks. Brilliant. Alison, I can't thank you enough for doing this. Where can people find you? Where can people see your work next? What is next for you? Thank you very much. It's been an absolute pleasure. And um, my work is showing at the Saatchi Gallery early September. Please visit my website if you'd like to see more, alisonjackson.com. And I've got a great book uh, called Private if you'd like to see more images. I can't wait. I'll see you at the Saatchi Gallery, or at least I'll see your work. I'm looking forward to it. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for listening to the full interview of this week's Rocket Fuel. I really enjoyed that chat. Um, There are many more that we've had, many more still to come. If you've got great ideas for guests or you just wish we'd ask different questions, then get in touch. We're really keen to take on board your feedback. In the meantime, give us a five-star review. Do share this podcast with someone who you think would really like it. And tune in next week. Thank you for listening. This is a Rocket Audio production.